Okay. <clears throat> so we're looking at uh, this portion of the farewell discourse, which constitutes the concluding teachings of Jesus to the 12 uh, disciples, preparing them for the crucifixion, for the resurrection, and his ascension. Now, uh, tonight we're going to focus in on 1629 to 33, but I'd like to uh, read the, the previous pericope and tie this all together so that we appreciate the sweep of what's being said. So I'm going to begin reading at John 16:25. So these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world, and I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know you know all things, and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. All right. So let's develop this and begin, begin reading at, at 29. So the disciples say, Lo, now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. And we now know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. Uh, and that little peculiar phrase refers to the idea that he teaches so clearly nobody has to go, huh? What did you mean by that? He speaks so plainly. No one needs to ask you anything to verify if you really do know uh, the way of God, for example. And by this, we believe that you came from God. Okay. So, by the way, um, hey, Janice. This is the first time in the discourse, Philip, where the disciples are collectively saying the same thing. This is the first time that they're all agreeing on a given conclusion. Periodically, this one speaks, Peter speaks, uh, uh, John may speak, or something to that nature. But here, it's the collective response of the whole group of the disciples. It's like they're, they're going, hey, aha, Dave, we get it. I now, I now believe, or we now believe, rather, that you came from God. Okay? Uh, they've at least attained some level of insight, of appreciation. Uh, now, notice, let's look at a little Greek, and, and this is kind of interesting. You know, for the most part, quite frankly, you really don't need to know a lot of Greek <clears throat> to even be scholarly. You don't. English is just fine. Did you know that? English is a great language. 
<laughs> and the team of scholars that have translated the, the Greek doc manuscripts into the, like the New American Standard, which is one of the best, I'm telling you, it's phenomenal. All the discipleship you'll ever need is right there in the English translation. You don't need to dabble in Greek or dabble in Eng, uh, uh, Hebrew to really get it, you know. I'll tell you what, it is so plain and simple and just good old English, you know. There's enough to keep us all busy. Yes, ma'am. Here it comes. I am recording this. Yes, to your students. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. So, but there are a precious few occasions. Uh oh, we just lost this. Here we go again. Uh, there are a few occasions in which, boy, is it really helpful to know some Greek. <laughs> Tonight will not be one of those occasions. So, what do we do with technology, you know? It's just one of those things, so. <clears throat> well, all right. How in the world could Jesus go through the Sermon on the Mount without PowerPoint? Really? How could he do it? All right. I know. All right, we're going on without it. So what we're going to do, look at, your, look at your text, and I'll do some translating work for you, okay? Verse 29, there's something a little peculiar the word is noon, noon. Think of it, N-U-N. And it's our English word now. So verse 29, his disciples said, lo, noon. Now you're speaking plainly. Verse 30, noon. We know that you know all things. Makes sense? Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you, art no, do you RT? Do you RT believe? He doesn't use the same word. You'd think he would. Now, see, you can't, sorry, you just can't see it in, Eng in English. But in Greek, it's two noons and then an RT. Why? It would have been perfectly fine if, if he used the word noon, but he doesn't. So this is what, and boy, a scholar named Michaels just really is a brilliant guy that I've tapped into on this. So you might do a translation something like this <clears throat> his disciples said lo right at this moment we get it right now in in the sense of time and space ah i got it now right now this very second click verse 30 click i got it i got it verse 31 jesus said not like you think you know <laughs> No, it's, it's, for, it's really, RT, for this moment, you know. It's not like, oh, yeah, we're done, class over, everybody passed the exam. Uh-uh. No. Oh, absolutely. Noon, noon, RT. At this moment, you think you get it, <laughs> right? So, and here's what's beautiful, is that uh, Christ is, and here's the tension of discipleship, iron sharpen iron, right? Okay. If Christ just kind of skimmed it over and Michael chose to just say, I'm so proud. We took a step forward today, didn't we, class? You know, it doesn't coddle them. 
it, it goes, you're, you're just now, now you figure this stuff out. And he uses the word that has a little barb in it. For this moment you do. For this moment you do. Because what has he been saying over and over again? You're, you're going, you're all going to leave me. That's in John 13 where Peter said, I will die with you. And Peter uh, is asked a similar kind of Greek construction. Are you, are you really serious about dying for me? Really? And, yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. I'll do it. And, oh, really? Peter, a rooster is going to crow three times you know, in your denial process with me. So that same kind of a question with a barb in it. Uh, scholars have really debated about verse 31, whether it's a statement or a question. Now, probably everybody here, what translation do you have, Michael? Holman, okay, Holman Standard. Uh, that's the New Southern Baptist kind of workhorse translation. Holman translates it as a question. You should see a question mark there. Probably everybody has a question mark. That's pretty, pretty standard among all the main heavyweight translations. But uh, in, and you know, should we be able to see the Greek text? I could show you that, in fact, in the Greek manuscript is a question mark. But uh, you and I know uh, if you've been married that your spouse may have an ability to ask a question, but he or she means way more of a statement than a question. And if, if we can do that in our marriage, most certainly they can do it uh, back in, in Greek culture. So, hey, look at there. So, um, there, now we're going. So, do you take this as a, a question, sure, but certainly there's more in it because he, he uses this word right, right here, arti pestuete, which means simply <laughs> you believe for now. For, this, for a little while you believe, but we'll see. We'll see how it holds up. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if you got it figured out. Is it what? Yes. Uh, Janice, do you see this right here? That looks like our semicolon, right? That's your Greek question mark, right? Right. So, and and all you know, and all the principal manuscripts do that. So, so it's a good translation to feature question marks, certainly. But translation is more than just literal letter for letter. You know, you're trying to get it meaning. So, um, so scholars really, really work heavily with that. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So, uh, uh, so, so it's beautiful that Christ is acknowledging that they have made a step forward, but by changing words, he's able to say, mm. "Absolutely, boy!" And he ever is is good at that. You know, it's really fascinating, Jenny. So, uh, one scholar uh, made made this statement that I think is really fascinating. When you compare this confession, we now believe that you've come from God. Okay, you and I sit here tonight and going, "Oh, that's sweet. They finally got it right." But think about it. Do you know anybody else that said that in John's Gospel? Okay, we get it. You came from God. Anybody else ring a bell? Can you think of one, Michelle? 
He was so afraid to be seen with Jesus, he came at night. Old Nick at night, Nicodemus, right? And basically, he, his confession constituted, we know that you're a teacher, come from God. Okay. Now, is that really, like, theologically meaty? Not necessarily. Did, J- did Dave and Joni come from God to Christchurch to help me out? Of course they did. Did God send them? Yes. Are they sent from God? Yes. Are they teachers? Yes. So if I said, Dave and Joni, I know that your teachers and caregivers have come from God. Am I telling the truth? Quite frankly, I am. So but he wasn't acknowledging miraculous birth. Not necessarily. He doesn't even understand this whole birth process. And he's, now remember, this is one of the leading teachers of all Israel. And he is really struggling trying to figure this thing out. And says, what do you mean? You, you can get back inside mom's womb? So this fellow's really confused, right? So we can't put a whole lot of stock in Nicodemus and his great theological confession. You know why? Because it's not so great. It's really not. And, the, and really, the disciples are saying something rather similar to just what Nick said. Not that theologically meaty. In chapter 6, what does Peter say? Remember, if you look in chapter 6 in John's Gospel, Christ is talking to the Jews, and more are leaving him. It's like the church is getting smaller, and people are running out the door. They can't stand this. Youth group's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. They're mad at the, at the guy. And finally, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you guys going to leave too? You, you going to quit following me? And then Peter makes a confession. We have come to believe that you are the Christ and that you have the words of eternal life. And that's a whole lot more meteor in John 6 than what they're saying here. Or even Martha's confession in John 11. Makes sense. So we don't need to be too impressed that these 12 men have finally figured out some really deep, profound truth. For example, in 29 and 30, do you see any Christological titles? Do you see any Christological titles? Like, you are the Christ, or Jesus the Christ. Do you see titles like Son of God? No, just we believe you came from God. That's pretty much it. So <laughs> it's like they took a little baby step forward and wouldn't it be the perfect time to shame them in the dirt after all he has given them? After, uh, Andrew, all the lectures, the, the best teaching you're ever going to get, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, he's given them the best that he's got. And this is their conclusion? It makes you wonder, can they really handle What's about to break loose in just a few minutes to a few hours? Makes you wonder what, what faith really, really looks like. So, um, Jesus embraces their conclusion, but also gives away that it's really on a pretty feeble foundation. So, um, I want to share something that the great... Charlie Dodd, C.H. Dodd, amazing scholar. Uh, This is what Charlie said. Listen real close. This is important. The damping down 
of an enthusiastic confession of faith might seem surprising if we did not remember that it corresponds to a constant pattern, not only in the fourth gospel, but in the other gospels as well, of people saying things and not doing things. Okay? It is part of the character and genus of the church that its foundational members were discredited men. The foundational members of the church are discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them, and they will never forget it. I think that is beautiful. In other words, the men that founded the church are the very men that consistently failed. They were discredited even in their confessions. They were discredited failed men, right? The men that started the church failed. What, then what made the church flourish? The finished work of Christ. So isn't it fascinating? What, what is the gospel? What is the good news? The good, the good news, Michael, is a response to the bad news. So let's start with the bad news. What's the bad news? We're broken people. Can we fix ourselves? What if we try really hard? Oh, come on. White-knuckled effort. Is it enough? I mean, the prophet even said, what if I give my firstborn? The prophet said that as a sacrifice for my sins. Is that enough? No. You can't even give the fruit of your own womb or your own child to pay for your sins. We literally cannot fix ourselves. That's the bad news. And in our brokenness, our broken state, we are doomed, and this is the bad news, to the judgment of separation from God, which is a concept that we call hell. Being separated from God is hell. It's awful. It is full of so much regret, there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That's the bad news. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own ways. There's none that seeks after him, and that is our destiny. But because God so loved the world, he sent his son to literally die in our place as a sacrificial lamb to take away the sin problem that separates us from God and destines us to hell. And herein is the good news, that Jesus Christ accomplished for us that which we could not accomplish ourselves. And that we, by faith, can believe in the finished work of Christ and receive the benefits of his death and his resurrection. That's the good news. And we experience the new birth. And our destiny changes. Paul writes in Colossians 1, he has transferred us from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son. The destiny changes. The good news only makes sense when you understand the bad news. Okay, that's the gospel. Well, guess what? When the church was founded, that gospel story was replayed yet again. In the very founding process, even the men that were charged with the responsibility to launch the mission were failed men, discredited men. And yet it worked. <laughs> and yet the church was born. 
Because, it, again, the, the work of Christ overcame their failures. It's brilliant. It's genius. It's called the gospel, and it applies to every aspect of our lives, and even to the point of how the church started. So, um, <clears throat> let's look at verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah 13, 7, when I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Okay. So you're going to leave me alone, guys. You, you know, remember a few chapters ago, Peter, you pledged loyalty to the death. Loyalty to death. Here, here, they all agreed. We'll all die with you. And yet, you're going to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone. And then Jesus makes this fascinating, uh, Dave, an autobiographical statement. And yet, I'm not alone. Because the Father's with me. All right, now. This is, a, this is a, a precursor of what's to come on Sunday morning. Okay. What is self-esteem? We derive our value based on how we see people seeing us. Mm -hmm. right? So if Michael likes me and thinks I'm a good guy, good pastor, then I must be because Michael likes me. If he doesn't, I'm a failed pastor. He'll find some other church and I'm a bad man, and I can't attract new members. And my self-esteem goes down and crashes and burns, right? Self-esteem. What's Christ-esteem? It is seeing ourselves, valuing ourselves exactly as he, Jesus, saw himself and valued himself. Okay? You getting it, Belinda? So check out that statement. Is Jesus going to be alone why? Because he is in the Father. But all the disciples leave him. Doesn't matter. Ah, there you go. That's called faith right there. Thank you, Terry. That's called faith. Yeah. So there's the whole point. Because Christ has esteemed Carla, even though he's rejected by every person important to him, every relationship has failed. Every single relationship has failed. Because his esteem is based on God the Father, and not on 12 fickle men, he is able to say, though all humans forsake me, I cannot be left alone and truly abandoned because the Father is with me. So, how does he value Jump in. Answer the question. Why would he? Why would Jesus intentionally value failures and treat them as though they have worth? You think Jesus sees something they don't see? Isn't that the gospel? Yes, 
Ooh, what a word, Joni, hope. By the way, regarding what I do, when I get a client that loses hope, this is bad. That's like we're moving toward worst case kind of scenarios when you start, when you've lost all hope. That's bad. So what if Jesus saw the end product? What if we were created for good works in Christ Jesus that were created and planned out before the foundation of the world? And what if God the Father knew exactly what Philip Deere was going to become and the great works Philip was going to do at the age of 45? And if Philip was introduced to those ideas, now he'd go, no, there's no way. Uh -uh. Nope, not me. Nope, 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 nope. And he might put his foot squarely in his mouth at his age now. But God knows something about Philip, that at 45 he's going to become an amazing man of faith and do something to advance the kingdom and everyone will be in awe. What do you do with somebody like David, whose best days were, you know, he, he went to the 40s and it was all downhill from there. He did not end up with anybody that we admire and want to be like. He's a cautionary tale. So you can't just project it as this, this future era that's always headed up on the graph. Can we? What is David's end game? Well, he gives his, he charges his son to do wicked things. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Cold can't get warm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Nobody wants to be with him, so they have to buy him a wife to just come be with him. Yeah. Proximity. Warm him up, yeah. Yeah. And then this, then the uh, revenge, the assassin assignments on his deathbed, yeah. sure. Sure. And yet he's known as what? Exactly. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, you can say that <laughs> if you're God operating outside of time, and you can just say, well, I'm going to aim to like when he's 35. <laughs> yeah. So, so the question perhaps could be twisted a bit, Andrea, and into this way, is God able to work with us and in us in spite of our failures? Uh, it's is it not a tendency? It certainly is in me. Uh, and I'll, I'll just, we'll just get a little personal here. When you're in seminary, do you know some of the big stuff that they push? That there are certain sins that permanently disqualify you from ministry. You can imagine what they would be. I guess murder would be one of them, right? Okay, go downhill from there, right? But there are certain behaviors a pastor can do that disqualify him from ministry. Is that fair? This is an open question. Is that fair? Only if you want to operate in the practical realm. Okay. But what if there's full repentance? Is there a point in, is there hope for restoration? Maybe. Depends on what he did. There you go. You've got, you've got two spheres. Sure. That's good, David. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about the average guy in the pew? Are there certain sins that disqualify him from use in the kingdom of God? Any real difference? Probably not. Right. The same sins that the pastor is accountable for is the average blue-collar Joe is accountable for. Really not that different. Janice? Kind of the point of Christ was seen. Mm -hmm. If you look at the disciples, not what Christ was seen, 
Mm-hmm. But Christ is beyond that. Mm-hmm. So he assigned failure to men, and we fail at that. Mm-hmm. And we call many things failures. But yeah. So isn't that what Christ is saying? Does is we we're, we can we understand? Yes. The bigger picture. Of yes, I think you're getting at it. So the question is: Is making a mistake a life sentence? Is it a felony? Right, or we're all in trouble, right? We're all in trouble. Every one of us is in trouble. So, Andrew's right. There are horrific consequences to little sins and big ones. Sure. Yeah, you end up cold because none of your many wives want to hang out with you. And a variety of other ways that David blew it. Um, <laughs> But the bigger picture is really the story of grace. And that David amidst all his sins, Andrea, and his, his really poor ending, and by the way, that same cycle was repeated in Solomon. His, his, the, like the first 20 years, fantastic, took Israel to its zenith, and then the last 20 took a nosedive. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Barnabas and Paul having a knockdown drag over at a kid named John Mark who was afraid and got homesick on a mission trip. And Paul being a, just it looks like he's being a rear end about the whole process. So yeah, 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 yeah. And yet God can work through all of those things. God does see the bigger picture, Janice, you're right. And in spite of our human whether it's foibles in the softer sense of our little odd, peculiar things that we do, or flat-out meanness. And when we are wicked and evil people, God still can work through those things. Isn't the genealogy of Christ? <clears throat> full of scandal. Oh, full of scandal. Really? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Grace is all through that genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Makes sense. God can work through that. All right. So, the gospel is clearly presented even in how this thing is starting and with discredited and flawed men. And in Andrew, I see grace. I see grace. And... I see something genius as we're getting inside. If we're doing attunement and we're getting inside Christ's head and kind of looking through his eyes, all 12 of you kids in the youth group, you're making your big pledges at the end of camp, but I'm telling you on the bus ride home, you're going to forsake me, and it's just an hour away, uh, and you're going to leave me alone, but you're actually, you can't abandon me because the Father is with me. All right, now... Some scholars might see a contradiction here in John's gospel because what is the great, the, conf- the, the confession, the great cry of abandonment in, in Matthew and Mark? What does it say? My God, my God, Johnny, why have you forsaken me? Guess, what's that? Right, it's quoting from the psalmist. But what's interesting is the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment, is that found in John's gospel? I'm going to make you look. 
First one that answers the question wins. Boy, you can't sneak one. For those listening online, what's that? He left, but he came back. He felt really bad about it, and he came back. <laughs> so, does John's gospel include the cry of abandonment? No. In fact, what is fascinating from beginning to end John's gospel presents the relationship between Jesus and, and, and God the Father with such intimacy that to get one is to get the other. And that intimacy in, includes the crucifixion. That God is still with me. The, the disciples have been with Jesus for three years. Correct. They've seen all the miracles. All, all the miracles. Peter walked on water. Yeah. <laughs> the whole shoot match in an hour before he's going to be arrested and hauled away. They say, now I get it? Mm. Now? I had the same thoughts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But they didn't, really. No, they didn't. <clears throat> Which I understand. Sure, sure. Yeah. So uh, I had a delightful conversation recently, recently with a client. Uh, some of my clients battle addictions on various levels from some pretty heavy-duty stuff to, you know, me, <laughs> my Cheeto addiction. And um, so there, there's two levels of, of temptation. And we're going to keep it just really simple for the point. One level is temptation that, you, that happens when you're at a homeostatic state. What is homeostasis? What is that, Michael? You guys know? What's homeostasis? What's that? It means you're at rest, your body. All systems are running. Like, we're basically in a homeostatic state right now. We're running at an optimal rest and digest state right now. Okay. So you have a homeostatic state, and then you have a state of distress, a threat response state. Okay. Temptations at those two levels are very, very different. Okay. For example, at the homeostatic state, uh, you might experience temptation like, well, I, I really feel tempted to view pornography. I'm tempted to do that. You're calm, you're, you're, you feel safe, feel very secure, and you think, you know, I can lock the door and I can goof around online and, and, and satisfy my lust for a variety of things or go to the closet, shut the door, and eat a bag of Cheetos and hope the grandkids don't find out, you know, whatever your, your homeostatic addictions are. And we, we feel like we can get away with lust like that because we feel very, very safe. Okay, and it's, and it's kind of innocuous. We think it's not hurting anybody but just ourselves. And, and there's a whole other Bible study about how sin damages not just you but everybody. And we get all that. But there's another level of temptation that goes way up the scale. And that's when you're in a threat response. For example, let's pretend, let's make this really ridiculous uh, illustration. We all go to Iran on a big mission trip. Now our cover is that we're going to do ESL. We're going to do ESL. English is a second language and we're all sorted out and ready to go, but we all manage to have Bibles in our luggage. Okay? Well, we land in Iran, we go through the security checkpoints, 
They snoop through everything. They don't say much. We get to the hotel. We, we're cruising along. We have some meetings to teach English. All is well. But on the last night, every one of us has an agent that comes and knocks on the door. Uh, we are arrested. We're taken to jails for interrogation. We're all slapped around a bit. Even the ladies get popped around, have a little bruising, roughed around with the guys. We're left for hours. Some of us have to soil our pants because we can't hold our bladders any longer, and it's really, really humiliating. Do you think we're getting into a stress response at this point? Think we're getting stressed out? Oh, yeah. We're getting real lonely. We're getting real scared. In fact, some of us are crying a lot because all we can think about is going home. And we hear all these stories, and now we're in Iran, and we're in a jail. And so some other people come in. You can hear all this talking in the background, and you're wondering, and they won't let us talk to each other, which really makes it scary. And all of a sudden, a cleric comes in and says, so, so I'll tell you what, we have something for you. Um, if you'll sign here, we'll let you go on. It's okay. You want to go on? It just simply says that you renounce Christ and that Muhammad is God's prophet, and which makes you Muslim, and, and it's good in your sight. Go on. Go on. Would you do that? Now, in your homeostatic state, you say, Why, no, of course not. I'm fully devoted to God. Yes. Yes, I've worked out my faith quite well. Okay. You're sitting in your own urine. You've been slapped around a little bit up for about 36 hours. You've been crying a lot. You're scared. You're hungry. Oh, they know what they're doing, by the way. Denying you food, water, weaken you. Now we're talking about temptation at a whole new level. And I bring that up because in, in, in Hebrews, it says he was, in, he was tempted in all things in which he suffered and did not sin. So he was tempted not only in a homeostatic state and all those gorgeous Palestinian around with the camels and all that stuff, right? <laughs> that was a joke. I don't guess it was so funny. I don't think Palestinian women and camels are pretty. Maybe, maybe not a big deal, right? Maybe Mary Magdalene is beautiful. The, the, uh, the, there's some, some Gnostic gospels that try to make a big threat that Jesus and Mary had a thing going on. Yeah. So maybe he knew some homeostatic temptation. Maybe he did. Okay. But we do know that he was tempted at the highest level under threat response. And he didn't sin. Makes sense? Okay. So I think we probably need to be graceful people that God can use discredited, blubbering fools like Chris Perry, <laughs> right? And he can use me, can use you, in spite of ourselves. And that makes sense, Janice, when Chris Perry chooses to see and value himself the way Jesus saw and valued himself. If you take that away from me, do you know who I become? A failure. A ne'er-do-well, can't-quite-do-the-big-thing-for-God kind of guy. Right? So from an autobiographical standpoint, Jesus Christ is revealing something brilliant 
that even though all of you forsake me and you break all your promises of loyalty, it's okay. It's okay. Because I'm really not alone. My father's with me. Now, look how he ties it off, the last verse in the, in the pericope. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. So get those two spheres. In me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Okay? A homeostatic state, a state of distress. But take courage, I've overcome the world. So the very same peace, Carla, that Christ has, that let him have uh, sanity, attachment, proximity, security, uh, healthy identity formation, all the cool stuff that makes up who we are, he could have that alone with the Father. A sustainable faith, even when alone, as opposed to a, a parasitic or a codependent kind of thing. This is genius. And he's saying that if you'll attach to this, if you'll get this, you can have peace even uh, when you're facing tribulation. 1427, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be fearful. All right, you're the gifted body of Christ. We went deep with it. How do we pull this out of the first century world into our world today and make sense of it so that we can be people with a deep and mature faith and not a feeble, elementary-ish kind of schoolboy, schoolgirl kind of faith here? Well, if he never sinned, did he know the end? Did he know the end result as God and as man? I mean, he was man and he was God. And he was tempted and everything, but he never sinned. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So when he was being tempted, did he know what the end result was going to be? I, I think so. I think so. That and that help you. Oh, well, genius, genius, Carla. You're quoting scripture. Well, I mean, that would help you not give in. Well, there you go. And so listen to what, try to tie all this together with what Carla just said in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing, this is what Carla was saying, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, our faith, who for the joy set before him, I think he saw the end game. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why? Because joy was set before him despise the shame. Why? Because joy was set before him. He endured the cross and has sat down now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I think you're right. Just reflecting on what he did for us can give us strength. Someone else, why does this matter? Mm. 
knowing their failed people. Yeah. Have you ever been around someone and with childlike heart and they lie right through their teeth to you? <laughs> in this beautiful childlike heart that they have, they're lying right through their teeth and you know it. You know it. And they're but their hearts are somehow good, right? I think that's what's going on with the disciples. I think he sees their hearts, I think he sees their eternal value, and he knows they're lying in their own childish bumbling kind of way they're making promises that they they can't keep he knows it they don't and so he lets them say it <laughs> Joni you were good. I was just going to say that because they want to so badly yeah yeah Joni, you just defined functionally discipleship. Treat others the way you want to be treated. There you go. All the time. All the time. Yeah. And if you have self-esteem, they will ruin your day. Right? But if you have Christ-esteem, they represent objects of the grace and love of God. So. Life-changing. Can I pray? Father, uh, I'm, I'm beyond words right now. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for grace and for the good news that came after all the bad news. In Jesus' name, amen.